Our church was still meeting in the old Dickie John building nearly 50 years ago when we hosted a couple of Abundant Living seminars. The seminars were led by a preacher appropriately named Jim Blessing. Jim taught that if we would be blessed with the abundant life that Jesus promised, we would have to rethink our priorities, priorities in life and even priorities in the church. He insisted that our priorities should be arranged as follows. First priority, our relationship with God. Our second priority, our spouse. Our third priority, our children. Our fourth priority, our job. And our fifth priority, our ministry in the church. Now, he did not give specific scriptures to support that arrangement, but it's It did seem to fit with biblical principles, and many of us tried to reorder our lives accordingly. It even made us rethink the priorities we had set for personal involvement in the church and helped us become a more family-oriented congregation. That arrangement of priorities can even help preachers keep their work in its proper place in their lives, something that preachers do seem to forget. They forget that the difference between them and other members of the congregation is that they don't have a job that has to come before ministry. But being in the ministry does not change the priority of spouse and children over ministry. I've always believed that. And I've always tried to keep God, my wife, and my children before my obligations as your minister. I believe that's the way Christ would have me serve him and you. And I believe that if I fail to meet my responsibilities as a husband and father and grandfather, I disqualify myself to serve as a shepherd of God's people. Now, I've shared that order of priorities for many years. But as I got older and my parents became older, I did come to realize there's another priority that needs to be inserted into the list. As parents age, they need to be added as a priority right after children. And that may be something I've mentioned to my son and son-in-law on occasion. (laughs) Anyway, it's not easy to keep life's priorities and obligations in balance. And to prioritize them appropriately. You know, making a choice between meeting a business or professional obligation and meeting the needs of your family is not easy. It's especially true if we view what we're doing as being very important. In fact, there is a tendency to overlook the ordinary tasks and responsibilities of life to accomplish something we deem to be more important. And we've all heard about those who are important and successful in the world 
but dismal failures on the home front who abdicate their family responsibilities in a quest for goals they deem more important or find more fulfilling. Now, that's not to suggest that we should limit our efforts in life to the things that affect only our immediate family and, and friends. You know, I'm very thankful for the contributions of great men and women who have impacted all of our lives in very significant and positive ways. But we should never get so caught up in the big issues of life that we ignore the simple domestic responsibilities we've been given. Our Lord did not. He didn't forget that. Even when he was dying on the cross for the sins of the world, he took time to deal with a very important domestic concern. One that can be clearly seen as John paints an unexpected domestic scene at the cross. We're picking up with the last half of verse 25 of chapter 19 of John's gospel. But there were standing by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Now, until this point, the scene at the cross has been anything but domestic. It's been a picture of unbelievable hatred and cruelty and pain. Those gathered around the cross were soldiers and Jewish officials who hated Jesus and a thrill-seeking mob. But a new picture comes into focus here. Luke tells us that the acquaintances of Jesus and the women who had accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. But John brings to our attention a small circle of family and friends who weren't content to remain at a distance came to the foot of the cross. So who were these people? Who were they? Well, the first one mentioned is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and it really doesn't surprise us to see her there. Since there's no mention of Joseph during Jesus' ministry, we assume that he died sometime before Jesus' ministry began. So the man who raised him and taught him the carpenter's trade, as well as I I'm convinced taught him God's word, couldn't be there. But his mother was there, and we would expect a mother to be there. Jesus' aunt, Mary's sister, was there as well. She isn't named here, but comparing John's account with the other Gospels, it appears that she was Salome, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, so James and John were cousins to Jesus. The third woman named is Mary, the wife of Clopas, or as the King James translates it, Cleophas. We're not sure of her identity because we're not sure who Clopas is. But most believe Clopas or Cleophas, or Cleophas was another name for Alpheus. And if that's true, she was quite possibly the mother of James the Less, another disciple of Jesus. Whoever she was, she was a good friend of Jesus' mother and his aunt. The fourth woman was Mary Magdalene. 
Someone well known to us because we saw her at the tomb on Easter morning. We all know her, but we may not have all of our facts straight about her. Luke tells us that Mary, who was called Magdalene because she was from Magdala, was one of the women who had been healed of evil spirits and sicknesses who accompanied Jesus and the disciples and supported their ministry from personal funds. And according to verses that were possibly added to Mark's account, Mary did have seven demons cast out of her. Now, what they did to her and what she was like when possessed were not told. She may have been a very wicked and immoral person. She may have had occultic powers. She may have been physically or mentally oppressed by demons. We, we just don't know. Now, some believe that she was the sinful woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears, but there's no indication from the text that she was that woman. Many contend that she'd been a prostitute, but that's pure conjecture. And Dan Brown moved into the realm of ridiculous with his assertions in the Da Vinci Code that she was Jesus' wife and the mother of his children. What we do know for sure is that she was a woman who had been changed by Jesus and who became a faithful follower and supporter of his ministry, and she was there with the intimate circle of family and friends, sharing with Jesus the agony of the cross. It was in this setting that Jesus turned his attention to a pressing domestic need. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Jesus' attention was immediately drawn to his mother. Now, I doubt that he wanted her to see him like that on the cross, but there she was, and he spoke to her. But what he said, and the way he said it, I find a bit surprising in a couple of ways. First, he addressed her as woman. We'd expect him to say mother, but we have no record of him ever calling her that. In fact, the only other time we know of him directly addressing her was at the wedding feast in Cana, where he also called her woman. Now, apparently, calling her woman was not the equivalent of today's disrespectful practice by some who refer to their parents as the old man and the old woman. It must have been an appropriate way to address one's mother, or Jesus wouldn't have used it. And perhaps, perhaps he intentionally used it to spare her the additional pain she would have felt if he had called her mother and she heard that coming from the cross. Now, hearing someone nailed to a cross call you mother would have been unbearable. So perhaps Jesus intentionally distanced himself a bit from her and said, woman, behold your son. You know, I'll never forget the distress that caused Marilyn to hear Nikki cry out, Mommy, the first time we tried to put her to bed without rocking her to sleep. <laughs> well, next, to whom was he referring 
as son. Was Jesus referring to himself? Was he calling attention to himself? Woman, behold your son? I don't think so. I don't think he was saying, look at me. He was calling her attention to the disciple whom he loved, who was also standing nearby and probably next to her. There's little doubt that that disciple was John. And as we read on, it becomes clear that Jesus was asking his mother to now think of John as her son. Why would he do that? Quite simply because as her eldest son, he would no longer be able to care for her needs. Joseph was gone. And Jesus' half-brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, had apparently turned their backs on him and perhaps on her as well. In the seventh chapter of John, we saw them taunting Jesus to go to Jerusalem and make a name for himself if he was really who he said he was. Apparently, they had written him off, and it's quite possible that they had done the same to a mother who held her eldest son in higher regard than the rest of her children. Now, following the resurrection, all that would change, and James would even become a leading elder in the Jerusalem church. But for the moment, that was quite possibly the situation. Whatever the circumstances, his brothers weren't there, and John was. So Jesus sought to meet his mother's needs by encouraging her to now look upon John as her eldest son. In doing so, she could look to him for physical as well as emotional support. And Jesus was concerned about his mother's physical needs. He wasn't so caught up in the spiritual implications of his mission on the cross that he ignored the physical needs of his mother. Nor was he so overwhelmed by his own problems that he overlooked the needs of his mother. Something that was very important to him. You may recall that Jesus harshly rebuked the Pharisees for dedicating their positions to God, declaring them to be Corban, and then using that to justify not meeting the needs of their parents. The Apostle Paul also spoke very harshly of such behavior. Writing in 1 Timothy, he says, If anyone does not provide for his own, and especially those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, the context indicates that Paul was talking about caring for one's parents, not their children, as is usually assumed. Jesus put a top priority on meeting the needs of his mother. And in doing so, I'm convinced he has demonstrated a concern for all domestic needs, including our needs. Our Savior isn't only concerned about spiritual matters. He cares about us on every level. When we accepted him as our Savior, we were adopted into his family and Jesus obviously does not ignore the needs of his family. Neither should we. Nor did John. 
Let's go on to see how John responded to his new domestic obligation. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now John's flesh and blood mother was standing there when Jesus said, Behold your mother. Mary's sister, Salome, was John's mother. I wonder how she felt when Jesus said, Behold your mother, knowing that he wasn't really talking to her. And I wonder how John felt. I would imagine thoughts like, well, wait a minute, I've already got a full house. Went through his mind. Perhaps he started thinking about the rest of the disciples. Maybe one of them had a bigger house or didn't have a mother of his own to care for. If he thought anything like that, he doesn't mention it. He merely states in the third person, of course, And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Now, tradition tells us that Mary lived with John for 11 years before she died. That was a long-term obligation. And I'm sure that she was at times a burden to John. No, he, along with the other apostles, had been commissioned to take the gospel into the world. And I'm sure there were times when he felt he should be out doing that instead of tending to Mary's needs. He had to give up personal time and even ignore apostolic responsibilities to to care for Mary. But he did it. He did it from that hour. He took her into his own household. He accepted the domestic obligations given to him by Christ with the same degree of commitment he gave to his public apostolic obligations. That makes it very clear that no task in life or world event is so important that we can ignore our domestic responsibilities. Now, it is true that we must love Christ more than father and mother and sister and brother and son and daughter. Jesus makes that very clear. Our love for him should make the love we have for our families seem almost like hatred. We love him that much more. That doesn't mean we ignore them. And our willingness to make Personal sacrifices for him will mean that our families will have to make sacrifices at times as well. I'll never forget when my kids were little. It almost became a game when I had to go out at at night to visit somebody. That as I would walk to the door, they would grab hold of my legs and I have to drag them to the door. And we did it in laughter. But there are sacrifices that have to be made by our children for us to accomplish what God has called us all to do. But we can't ignore our children. We can never ignore their needs, nor fail to make provision for them whenever possible. You know, Jesus made provision for his mother even in the midst of sacrificing himself for the sins of the world. And that 
That should definitely motivate us to keep our priorities right as we balance the demands that are placed upon us. And it should certainly assure us that we have a Savior who cares about our needs. A Savior who loves us and will never get so busy tending to the affairs of the world that he will forget about the needs of his children. He will never forget those who have taken shelter under his wings. And I pray that that is you. <laughs>